I've communicated with some people inside of North Korea, and I heard from them that the recent famine is very similar to 1990s famine. And as we all know, almost 3 million people died of starvation during that time. Hyunsung Lee, otherwise known as Arthur Lee, is a former member of the North Korean ruling party. He and his family were fiercely loyal to the regime, but after being on the side of economic reform and witnessing several brutal internal purges by Kim Jong-un, including that of Kim's uncle, the family made the decision to defect. Many people, especially top people, even general public in Pyongyang city, don't know what's happening outside of Pyongyang because of the isolation of the information. The regime strictly controlled the information distribution. We discuss North Korea's current food crisis, the regime's nuclear weapons program, the value of free information, and what can be done to bring about change. The regime keeps saying that once we have nuclear weapons, we'll live better life and we'll be strong country in terms of economy and the military side. Now they have you know, nuclear weapons and then people are still suffering from the starvation. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Arthur Lee, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me, Yeah. Arthur, you are, of course, a defector from North Korea. Um, we've known each other for a while now. I'm very excited to finally get you in the hot seat here. Um, there's been a lot of incredibly troubling information coming out of North Korea recently. On the one hand, there's this BBC documentary that talks about famine, famine so bad that it might be like it was in the 90s, which was you know, absolutely terrible. North Korea is accusing the U.S. of trying to ignite a nuclear war. Um, there's huge rallies being staged to that effect in the capital. Um, basically, a lot of uh, nuclear bluster, which is never good, I think. So how do we make sense of this? First of all, um, my name is Hyunsung Arthur Lee, and I'm a North Korean escapee. And I escaped North Korea when I was 29 years old. And I saw the BBC documentary as well, and um, I've communicated with some people inside of North Korea. And I heard from them that uh, the recent famine is very similar to 1990s famine. And as we all know, um, almost 3 million people were died of starvation during that time. But um, most people in Pyongyang, the capital city of North Korea, didn't realize what happened the, in the local area. So I would say it's very similar situation. The top people inside, they couldn't realize what happened, what's happening. But uh, the local people, like rural area, general public are suffering of starvation. I think it's very um, reliable uh, resources from the BBC documentary. So um, it's very saddened for me and you know my fellow North Koreans that you know we are still suffering of starvation in this you know 21st century. Um, as you mentioned earlier, North Korean regime keep mobilizing people. They're promoting everything against the United States inside of North Korea and. That's one of their strategy to, uh, you know, bonding people as a one forced to against, you know, U.S. So, um, so basically, you're, you're saying that this uh, the nuclear bluster is more for the internal population to basically say, but there's this enemy, and we have to unite against them. Is, is that what you're saying? 
um, your uh, analysis is accurate. For Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leadership, it is the lifelong project. And uh, when we are in North Korea, the regime keeps saying that once we have nuclear weapons, we'll be, uh, live better life than in the previous. And we'll be a strong country in terms of economy and the military side. Now they have you know, nuclear weapons and then people are still suffering from the starvation. And people keep questioning that. What's the difference? But for the regime, it's the uh, narrative and tactic to keep developing nuclear weapons and you know, uh, anti-hostile policy against the United States is the uh, core policy of the regime to isolate the country and keep uh, utilized resources to develop nuclear weapons. Fascinating. So I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier. It might not be obvious to people how different mm -hmm. the people in Pyongyang are from the rest of the country, from the rural areas, and how they perceive each other differently. And that's, this is actually not academic from you because you are very much from, mm -hmm. from Pyongyang, from yep. the elites. I want you to tell me about that, but why don't you tell me a bit of your story? Because it's also a bit unexpected that someone from the elites might end up being a defector given that you had a pretty good life compared to most people, right? So um, my story is, you know, many, f from the many aspects, uh, you know, is different from the other many North Korean escapees. So, um, you know, the Pyongyang is the most concentrated uh, everything, like resources and then the power and the people living in Pyongyang are the um, people who actually shining the North Korea and then ruling North Korea. And I was the um, kind of core elite member in the society. And um, since my dad served two times uh, high ranking position in the country, uh, the positions were uh, directly appointed by the North Korean leader, the former leader, Kim Jong-un's father. Uh, because of my father's high-ranking position, I went to top schools and then um, I was loyal to the regime. And I served the North Korean military more than three years and I was the uh, member of the North Korean ruling party. And I joined the party when I was 20. It's very unprecedented and um, I was like uh, the leading young personnel who can be uh, the young leader of the North Korea. Um, but I had an opportunity in, uh, opportunity to study abroad in China. And that changed my whole point of view and life. And eventually my family made a life decision to defect in October 2014. Um, the decision was not easy because, as you know, that means that we have to give up everything what we achieved in the past. But in 2013, there was a big incident happened, uh, which we, uh, which media publicized that it's uncle, Kim Jong-un's uncle's execution and his fellow associates and aides. It's not just Kim Jong-un's uncle's execution. It's 
related to the whole, his, the crew. It's, um, we assume that hundreds of officials were executed and their families were sent to the political prison camp. Obviously, my dad's friends, many friends were executed and sent to political prison camp. And myself lost several friends. And uh, my close friend who studied um, in Chinese university together, uh, he, him and his entire family were uh, imprisoned in the political prison camp. My sister, she was in China as well, and her roommate was arrested in front of her and then sent to the political prison camp from China to North Korea. So that whole the instance and gave us like an unbelievable story and unbelievable the um, impression about the regime because before that we were thinking that we can still change the society, we can make this society better but the whole belief was collapsed. And then my family decided to defect. How did you discuss that in the family? It's very unusual who can discuss about the defection or criticize the leader of the society, even with your family members. But uh, we were outside of North Korea. We were in China at the time, and uh, but we are still very cautious. So we um, didn't discuss the faction at home. We went to park, open place. We put all the electric devices in our car, and we had a free discussion for a long time, and we conclude that. This is not the society we want to live. This is not the leader we want to serve. And we should do something for these people and for this country. And uh, Maida especially, he has very um, good intention when he served his uh, position in the country. And he was trying to open the country. He was trying to uh, build more economic uh, the living conditions for the people. So. Um, he's very favorite to the uh, reform and open the economy in the country, but um, the Chang Zhongtek, Kim Jong-un's uncle's execution turned down everything. The North Korean elite group were envisioning the society. What was it exactly that that whole, you know, execution or removal of that whole, let's call it, faction of people that Kim Jong-un thought were a threat. Why did that stop all that progress exactly? So Kim Jong-un's uncle was in charge of North Korea's economy development and then the making money for the regime. But Kim Jong-un felt threat by his uncle and he didn't like what Jiang Zhong Tak was doing. So Kim Jong-un's uncle was um, making policies for opening and reform. Mm -hmm. Now Kim Jong-un realized that that opening reform and policy could threaten him and could undermine his authority. 
It makes sense because when we do open and reform, and it means that open the society to the world. It means that the information flow and the information, every piece of information could impact Kim Jong-un's authority because he's not a legitimate leader. He couldn't, should be the um, leader at first place. That's why um, he ordered to execute his half-brother in Malaysia. Okay, no, I, I, I understand. But so it also makes me think, you, that's why you might have been wondering also your family, hey, maybe we'll be next because you were involved in that same vision. Absolutely, not just my family, whole North Korean elite members were thinking in that way. I mean, he even executed his uncle. What's afraid of him? Nothing he's afraid. He can execute anybody else. Tell me how the people in Pyongyang perceive the rural people and how the rural people perceive the people in Pyongyang. I've engaged with local people when I was in military and when I was doing business. And there are many different aspects from the local area. So people in rural area very much, um, in, um, how do I say, respect Pyongyang. They want to be a citizen of the Pyongyang. And everything they uh, do is trying to be, you know, living, trying to living in the capital city. But on the other hand, they have another hatred towards Pyongyang because the North Korea society is all about the Pyongyang and the Kim family regime. So once the people, they realized that they couldn't live in the society and they just, you know, making hatred, why Pyongyang is so special and why, you know, the regime didn't, don't care about us. So there's all those, um, you know, bad impression towards the society is um, all over the rural area. I sensed that, I felt that. And uh, some areas, even like people are throwing a stone towards the, the Pyongyang, the you know, plate of the cars. So that's very harsh uh, you know, condition in rural area against the capital city. And within, and so what about the what about the the residents of Pyongyang, the elites? How do they view the rest of the people? Um, they don't have much any um, particular you know, views, but they think they are different. Little arrogancy, and they don't. They think um, um, we are chosen, but um, especially. The people, the co-elite group in Pyongyang think, you know, from the very young age, their grandparents were very um, elite group and they were treated especially, so they think they are different. But the ordinary Pyongyang people are not that much um, different from the local people. So, um, the inside of Pyongyang, there's also you know, division, like general public and the core members of the, the society. So let's go back to the famine now. So why do the people in Pyongyang not know what's happening in the rest of the country? Many people, especially top people, even general public in Pyongyang city, don't know what's happening outside of Pyongyang. Because of the isolation of the information, the regime strictly controlled the information distribution, even Pyongyang city.
even people to people. So especially those information about the regime and then the, the society, the, if that information is the um, bad about the society, then the regime think it shouldn't be distributed. And somebody who wants to share or distribute information with other people, and they could be punished very severely. Fascinating. So when you're talking to your contacts, you have contacts both in the city and outside the city, and you're getting different feedback? Is that the situation? Pretty much. So people inside Pyongyang don't understand the famine, mostly. But the local people, they reported us in the media that, you know, like last week, we lost five people of starvation and the whole family would die. And, you know, nobody checked on them and they just, you know, found them like after deaths several days later. The society functions differently than what most people are used to, right? And I'm trying, I want to kind of establish some of that as we're, as we're talking here. For example, in that BBC documentary, they also talked about using some sort of special methodologies to actually do the communication because of the potential risk, right? You said this information control is so strict. If people knew that anyone was communicating with the outside, especially you, mm -hmm. that would be probably a death sentence, right? Yep, that's a high risk, but still some people once deliver the truth to the outside and people want to share what the um, the loved ones because in the end the information is the key to change the society we all know that so people are risking their life to share the information one of the activists uh, in that documentary mentions you know of course that we talk about the informational but since the chinese border was sealed right since covid basically that even that level of information, the very limited amount of information was even um, reduced even further. You know, I think he calls it the blackest of the black holes, and it, that black hole has gotten even darker, right? Yeah. Um, due to the pandemic, the information, the amount of information is uh, limited, but um, we, all, we have North Korean people outside North Korea, and those people keep maintaining contacts inside, with the inside people. So we get uh, sources from different uh, people. Uh, what, what would you say is the most important piece of information you've gotten to share with us today? Um, the first of all, I, I confirmed some famine, uh, the stories, and it's very tragic and uh, like, Several months ago, there was 19 people in like the farming area were dead because of the starvation. And when we think about the farming area, they, should, they shouldn't be in that situation. They're producing rice, the food. But because of the regime took all the rice for the military side and the farmers you know, they registered several times and they couldn't get the um, enough solution from the regime and eventually they were uh, dead because of that. 
So that was very heartbreaking story. And also, um, the secondly, uh, people are executed because of the information sharing. So two years ago, North Korean regime established law to preventing to prevent someone who shared information with the people inside that could lead to execution. And I heard that many people were punished because of the uh, sharing just K-drama and U.S. movie. Never mind actually sharing on the ground realities, right? Yep. Just it's regardless of the level of information, they uh, punish people. Let's, let's jump to the second point, which was around nuclear war, um, nuclear power, you know, all this. So you kind of explained, you know, why would you have these big rallies and everything? Because this is a method of sort of internal control focusing on the enemy. Is there some kind of increased threat right now? I would say there is no external threat to North Korea. But the regime created that because the regime keep educating people and make a propaganda that United States and South Korea are always try, trying to invade North Korea to take their asset, take their life. The regime's logic is that's why we have to be prepared and that we have to uh, utilize every resources to prevent those invasions. But in reality, there's no external threat, as we all know. But inside, you know, it's isolated, so people couldn't understand what's happening outside. So many people, I mean, there's no choice but to believe the regime's narrative. That's the reality. I definitely want to talk about that more, but do you think there's any increased threat to South Korea, to the region, to the U.S.? I don't see any increased uh, the threat because, uh, you know, North Korean regime mainly accused South Korea and United States of the military exercise, but it's, you know, general military training and an exercise. It's defense uh, exercise. It's not attacking one, but um, the regime believed that once the U.S. and South Korea conduct military drills, and then it could lead to attack North Korea. So um, they always said that um, we have to be prepared. So once there was a big exercise, and then they mobilized people, you know, rallies and you know, signing petitions to be, um, you know, soldier and like that. But on the other hand, North Korea maintained its core policy, the main policy to unify North South Korean Peninsula by uh, Kim Jong-un regime. Even it's stated in the constitution and that's the ultimate goal for the regime. So on one side you have very, very strict, deliberate messaging repeated again and again. On the other hand, you have this vacuum of external information. How many people do you think believe it, actually? So in the past, uh, I would say 1990s, most of people believed what regime said. But throughout the famine, and people accessed a lot of information from outside, 
and they conduct market activity and their reliance on the regime is little uh, decreased mm -hmm. and more and more gradually the, peop the regime's uh, control is undermined and people lost the credibility of the regime. So now it's very hard to say, but I have to say how people still believe, how portion of the people still believe the regime's agenda and promotions. And what about the Pyongyang people? Will those more be believe more or believe less? When I interacted with people when I was in North Korea, it seems like not many people believed what the regimes, uh, what regime said, but it's like entire society's atmosphere. If you don't believe, and you can be punished, and but um, you don't believe, but you cannot share with other people. I think that's the situation. So, you know, the people who access more information less believe the regime's narrative. When you were in there with your family, did you guys believe it? Before I came to China to learn outside information, I totally believed the, what regime said. I was the um, like you know some kind of elite member, but I don't access any information inside. So I had to believe. No choice. So. North Korea is the um, ultimate propaganda country. Let's talk about the Korea-China relationship, because of course there's a bunch of cross-border activity, right? On the one hand, there's refugees that have come across and get forced, forcibly repatriated. We've heard about that. There's that whole, um, you know, kind of sex work industry, which Yanmi Park exposed to some extent. Um, then there's legitimate people that are officially working outside. I think, I think you've told me there's 100,000 of those. Yep. This border closure kept them on one end, even though they don't have visas. There's all these complications, right? Yep. And then on top of that, there's also IT workers that the regime is cultivating to place in companies outside for all sorts of reasons, partially for uh, nefarious reasons of their own, right? As opposed to just sort of making money outside the country. So I, if you can kind of break that down. The, to summarize, there's not a lot of people go out of the country, but some do. And most of them end up in China, the ones that can go back and forth. So what, give me the sense of the reality. Um, since the pandemic, North Korean regime intentionally closed the border from January 2020 until now, I would say that they intentionally closed the border because of some benefit. And it's not the benefit for people, it's the benefit for Kim Jong-un himself. In the past, we conducted business with China and there are lots of byproducts and people are benefit, get the benefit from the, um, this business. Even though most of money uh, were extracted by the regime, but still the people are involved in the industry getting money from, uh, making money from the uh, business. But now it is total closure and Kim Jong-un only get money from those people outside North Korea, which we call them as a slave workers. And they are all officially uh, 
uh, dispatch it from the North Korean regime. And I would say 100,000 people are working in China. And because of the visa status, they are all illegally working in, in China. And the UN Security Council resolution in 2017 uh, told every country, the UN members, should you know, send back all North Korean workers to North Korea because those monies are exclusively contribute to North Korea's nuclear and weapon programs. But China didn't follow the rules, didn't, you know, did their responsibility as a responsible nation. And especially China is the, um, you know, both member of the National Security Council, right? Um, but uh, North Korea knows that, you know, if they close the border, China cannot send the North Korean workers back to North Korea. So let them keep in China, let them making millions of dollars every year, regardless of their willingness. So many people, the workers, sent information and letters, even wrote, you know, handwritten letters to us and other people that we want to go back because we want to see my family for three years, four years, they couldn't see their families. And even they worked so hard, 12 hours, 14 hours, without any proper conditions, they couldn't earn money because the regime kept all the money. And they said that when you go back to North Korea, we will give it to you. But none of them kept the money they made. They only got a small portion of the money. So most of the workers inside China now, the North Korean workers, very frustrated and they want to defect. It's very similar situation with the, the IT workers as well. They are highly trained and then skillful people. They make millions of dollars every year hacking cryptocurrency and hacking banks. And also they are doing outsourcing work. They are making website, they are making animations for the, um, you know, different companies. Especially, um, I heard recently that uh, most of their um, clients are from the U.S. And um, the clients in the U.S. Couldn't, real, couldn't even know they are North Korean, you know, IT workers. Because there are a number of different involvement and as a, you know, fake ID and, you know, fake Shell companies, shell and companies so forth, in right. Hong Kong and our side. So, yeah. And so, and what about the the refugees? There's actually people who have escaped, right? Who ended up in China, or um, and there's also these, you know, sex workers, which I understand. There's 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 that whole kind of dark human trafficking industry as well. Um, I didn't realize until the fact about the sex workers because of the information isolation, those information couldn't reach us when I was in North Korea. I learned after I defect, and it's very heartbreaking, and especially Yomi's story and the suffering she went through, it's unimaginable. And I would say it's not just Yomi, there are thousands of people are in the same situation right now. During the famine, many, many North Korean escapees left North Korea and settled down 
in China. Of course, they don't have any identification. They couldn't register their you know, ID in China. They are illegally living with their you know, Chinese families. So many of them were originally sold as a you know, sex worker and then as a like, slave. But you know, some women married to Chinese people, they gave a birth. But now, like several months ago, Chinese authorities rigorously looking for those people and arrest them and try to send back to North Korea. And even some Chinese police get bribery and will list them and one month later and one or several months later to just arrest again. And the families are obviously frustrated this situation. They have a children, two or three. And what if the mom, if the moms repatriated to North Korea and couldn't see their you know, families in the future? And that's the, um, the two countries are doing to its own people. And also, there are two types of escapees in China, those people who escape North Korea because of economic situation. And also those people who work as the workers or officials in China, and they were captured by the Chinese police during their escape. Um, so these are, just to be clear, these are people that were, the, oh, they're in China already, and then they try to, they kind of, escape, but then they're captured by the Chinese authorities. Yes. Okay. So recently, many uh, the IT workers and North Korean workers are sick of North Korean regime, and they try to escape. And many of them almost, you know, succeed of the escape, but the Chinese authorities arrest them, and they keep... Uh, you know, interrogate them and then keep them in the detention center. And now they are ready to send them back if the border is reopened. And they're resending them to South, like they're trying to escape to South Korea, is that right? Most of them uh, were trying to escape to South Korea. The one line from this BBC documentary, and I thank you for, for, for sharing that with me, um, that, that really hit home is, you know, the woman says, um, I, you know, I want to be in a society where we don't have to spy on each other. That's actually a very sad thing. The totalitarian and authoritarian society, they share similar feature that, you know, let people spying on each other and reporting each other so that the regime get the benefit and punish people because of their action, uh, fantasizing or uh, the fantasizing the uh, Western culture. For example, your neighbors can be a spy for your family. And if your family expressed uh, dissent or disagreement with the regime, that that just one word could be delivered by your neighbor to the workers' party, the ruling party. And because of that word and because of that um, action, your entire family could be in political prison camp. And I just want to jump in. So with these prison camps, and I still find this incredibly mind-blowing, difficult to fathom, but it's not just necessarily 
the people there. It could be three generations of people. Yes, of right? course. So that is the most notorious society, uh, system in North Korea. It's guilty by association system. And which means that your three generation has to be punished in that system. And if your grandfather uh, become a uh, traitor of the nation and your son, your grandson, must live in the public prison camp. And I heard that even those babies were born in the public prison camp have to spend their whole life in public prison camp. And actually in 2010, my um, neighbor, the entire family were imprisoned in public prison camp. He was the political ambassador in Beijing and his charge was um, just you know several meetings with the Kim Jong-un's half-brother. And later we found out that entire family vanished and our neighbor told us that even their children, the grandchildren, were sent to the Polka prison camp. So they have four children and then this, you know, they have all grand grandchildren. And then even the third son's child is only two years old. Two years old baby also sent to Polka prison camp. Only survivor was that family, was the little five years old girl of um, the daughter's granddaughter, which means that she has a different last name. Because of that, the regime forcefully divorced the daughter and um, the you know son-in-law, and then the the daughter kept the son-in-law's last name. That's why she can be a survivor of the entire family. Other than that, whole family sent to the public prison camp. That happened a lot, and we assume that there are 200,000 people are imprisoned in public prison camp. 90% of them are from the elite class. North Korean regime don't put just the general public in the facility. They put elite members who used to be loyal to the country. Most of them are political victims of the regime, but the regime think that they are the threat to the regime. How does the North Korean economy work even? Its economy is already broken. It's already collapsed. But the people made their own life through market activity. In the low level, like uh, the domestic level, they already achieved the market system. But uh, it's top level, when it comes to top level, the regime can procure money from the uh, resources like labor workers, IT workers, and then nowadays um, gold smuggling. So we couldn't even call its economy. It's more like one gang you know, leader just you know, making his money and giving some money and distributing some money with the, you know, its own clan. So the rest is basically just people effectively functioning on a black market of sorts. So when analysts say that the regime is highly dependent on money from China, are they talking about 
these IT workers, um, all these different workers, all this money coming in that, or is there some other source of money as well? Uh, before the pandemic, the most trade was uh, through, we conducted trade through China. It's almost 90%. When the analysts say that the reliance in China is the important export. So North Korean uh, regime sell the natural resources to China and then they got the, uh, the materials from China. So that makes like important export. So um, China had a wider um, market than Russia. And Kim Jong-un didn't like China, but uh, he actually uh, gave all the business people order, you know, many years ago that, oh, we want to uh, utilize Russian market more than Chinese market, and then they thought that, oh, Kim Jong-un was crazy, and then there's nothing we can trade with Russia at the moment. So when we do business in between North Korea and China, they're mostly involved with front money. So Chinese investors, Chinese business people put money first so that they can, you know, get the resources from North Korea. The Chinese regime obviously support North Korean regime. They provide um, the crude oil, uh, refined oil every year, and then uh, let North Korean regime conduct smuggling, everything, for the survival of the regime. They don't want North Korean regime to be collapsed. But what I'm saying is trade, and then this generally Chinese business people think that they can make money through the business. Actually, they made a lot of business. The North Korea has you know, natural resources, so they get the natural resources resources from North Korea at l very low price. Mm. That, the price gap, made them make a lot of money. So here, you know, in D.C., um, where you've decided to live, what do you see as a future here for North Koreans, for yourself? I'm currently working as a fellow at nonprofit, and I uh, consulted a lot of North Korea policy uh, to the uh, government agencies and the reason I was involved in that industry because I think the policy is important and uh, I found out that in 2016 that not many people have accurate view on North Korea so I want to share the accurate views and give more uh, information so that they can uh, make a right policy. Uh, soon I'll be studying at Columbia University for um, public administration. So uh, the reason I pursue this career because uh, I want to be more effective policymaker and policy influencer. So one day I hopefully um, the U.S. policy and international policy can make a change of North Korea. You know, very broad strokes here. What do you think it would be the right policy for the U.S.? The right policy would be uh, focusing on changing the society because the U.S. international community couldn't reach the goal of democratization and improving human rights. The top problem is the system and the leader. We are afraid to say that changing the regime, but we should encourage the people inside to change their lives.
and give more objective information, give truth to the people so that they can decide what they want. Now, in the people inside North Korea, they couldn't get their own decision. It's all drafted by the regime. It's the only voice of the regime, not the voice of the people. I've lived in North Korea 29 years, and I also experienced in China. And I can guarantee that the totalitarian system and dictatorship and authoritarian regime is a totally different system and a totally different ideology. I often, I often talk to people um, about uh, China's policy, the Chinese Communist Party's policy of comprehensive national power. The summary of it is they don't believe in win-win relationships. It can only be I win, you lose. If it's, if it's even, then I'm losing. That's not acceptable. It's the same policy with China as well. You, you lose, I win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's people in America um, who are concerned, right, about too much U.S. attempting to intervene in other places. They point to some failed policies. They, they point to, you know, in some cases it looks like it was much more self-interested right, than helping people outside. Um, and they worry about that. They worry about, you know, calling for America to try to intervene in other places. So what, what do you say to people that are thinking that way? Um, at some point, I agree with them. America should you know, focus on their own policy and, you know, focus on its people. But the Korea issue and some issues around the world are directly impact the U.S. national security and U.S. policies, especially uh, the Korean Peninsula issue was a um, you know, long unresolving uh, issue for America from 1950s. And um, actually, the, I don't see any hope if there is no U.S. involvement. And I'm not saying that um, this direct involvement, but I want to U.S. policymakers and U.S. people to um, give a North Korean people a chance to change their society. I lived in the four different countries, North Korea, China, South Korea, and United States. I learned that the U.S. is the best among four. I know many people criticize United States, even they don't believe in their society because of the uh, different policies and divisions. But still, it's the best country I've experienced. And uh, the core value of this society is individual freedom and in democracy. Even though they argue, they debate, but this country has the best system so far. So I have hope for the North Korean regime. And and I think it eventually helped the society. You know, you just reminded me of, I, I was in a, uh, listening in a Twitter space where uh, uh, Elon Musk was interviewing uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Actually, for some of it, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was interviewing Elon Musk. <laughs> I, that's how I viewed it. Mm -hmm. But Elon Musk said something along your lines here where he mentioned, you know, what other nation would have, you know, after World War II would have built you know, Germany built Japan, you know, these countries which were the sort of prime aggressors, right, in the war. They, 
put millions and billions of billions of dollars in and goodwill. I thought it was a very interesting answer why he believes America is a good nation, right, with all its flaws. Yep. Sometimes when I talk about communist China, um, I'll talk about, uh, you know, certain policies, certain realities over there, um, even just recently encroachments on freedom in Hong Kong, like the, how that society has totally changed. Mm -hmm. People say, well, we, we do the same thing here in America, right? And I, and I, and I, and I have to say, I always say, I, no, it's, it's not the same. Even though there might, there might be some similarity, mm -hmm. right? But I, I, sometimes I find it difficult to explain that to people. It would be sad if we see the same situation in the uh, society like America. But from my observation, I think uh, there are many differences. Um, for example, if I criticize leader of North Korea in North Korean society, I could be destroyed. And entire my family could be destroyed because of that one word. But in the United States, Still, there's some protection system, and then there's some you know platforms you share, and people who can you know trust or you know support you. And it's same thing with North Korea as well in China. In Chinese system, if you against the Chinese policy, the leader's policy, and you could be immediately removed from the society, and you could face a lot of punishment by the, uh, the authorities. But in the United States, I would say um, still I think the foundation of the system and then the, the punishment system is a lot different. And um, I believe that uh, the U.S. shouldn't be go in that direction, ultimately the freedom of expression is what creates people to be uh, liberated in mindset. So, This has been such a remarkable conversation. Um, learned a lot. Um, any final thoughts as we finish? I hope that American people should uh, respect the society because many people in the world think that still America is the best the freedom they have cannot be compared to the other nations. And I have to say that the American people should keep their freedom and then keep their, their national pride for its uh, citizens and the world. Well, Arthur Lee, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's my privilege to uh, talk with you and share my thoughts. Thank you all for joining Arthur Lee and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.